<laughs> Welcome everyone. Uh, today uh, we have Ajahn Pavro who's going to give the Dhamma talk. Um, Ajahn Pavro um, has recently arrived. He'll be visiting Tisarana uh, for the bus, for the rains. So he'll be here until the uh, mid-November. Um, Ajahn Pavro is the first Canadian bhikkhu ordained in Canada by a Canadian preceptor in a Canadian sema or ordination boundary. Um, Ajahn Pavro has uh, 14 reigns as a bhikkhu, so he's been a, a full bhikkhu for just over 14 years. And um, he's visited Tisarana a couple of times in the past. And uh, we're really glad to have him here and uh, looking forward to hearing his uh, first Dhamma talk this visit. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang dhamang sanghang namasami. So I'm still feeling pretty new here, and so it seems that every every time there's some sort of gathering, and I'm I'm the one who has to call for the choreography or whatnot. I feel like I'm making mistakes. No, we don't do that on Saturdays. Only on <laughs> just it just uh, speaks to the fact that uh, that monasteries all arrange space and time and and so forth a little bit differently. There are broad similarities, of course, the chanting and and that, but there are also variables that that get encoded into the the structure of of things. So so it's uh, it's about feeling like a beginner in some way or another, isn't it? um, I'm reminded of of a... of something I'd like to just uh, reflect a little bit on. Crawford came out and visited me in the workshop just before uh, we started here, and um, and I've been enjoying, really appreciating being able to work in a <clears throat> in a wood workshop that has lots of tools and lots of space and lots of wood, and um, and um, all kinds of encouragement for someone to 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 do things like what I'm doing. So that's been nice. But they're in any kind of job, whether it's uh, growing vegetables or uh, darning socks or um, um, anything, cooking, uh, there, are, there are aspects to the task that we feel less familiar with and that we need to sort of prompt ourselves into or be encouraged to undertake. And uh, for me, it's uh, sometimes sharpening chisels because it's a little bit messy, you know, you get this kind of grimy stuff on your hands and then you have to go and wash them before you touch the wood. But also, um, 
it's metal and metal seems so permanent and and when when chisels come from shops they're so pristine and kind of you know this mirror-like finish and they're so sharp and and all that and yes if you if you're not working with a, a sharp chisel or sharp plane blade um, uh, nothing works very well so it's one of those jobs that that I'm a little bit iffy around sometimes and I remember um, uh, reading this uh, this advice by some you know old woodworking pro um, never never be afraid to mess up sharpening a chisel you know just go for it you, you can always fix it and uh, this this does speak to the nature of practice that you just have to jump into things somehow uh, with your good intentions but be aware that uh, things can go sideways or you're bound to bring whatever level of competence or incompetence you have to a task and you'll have the consequences of your of your competence uh, there to meet your eyes and, 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 and then you get to work with that but that's called practice. I sort of joked about this once with a friend of mine who's a surgeon and uh, because surgery is called a practice isn't it <laughs> and uh, for any of you who have been uh, sedated and wheeled into some oddly still and oddly busy room um, uh, for surgery that might come as a bit of a shock um, Ajahn Jayasaro who's one of the elders that we have in, in Thailand very articulate uh, in both English and Thai, apparently his Thai is just is just sublime. Um, he he recently published a book. I, I gather he he sometimes will write little reflections in 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 hand, and maybe he would send them to people. I'm not sure how this came to be discovered, but someone had the bright idea of publishing a book of these little handwritten reflections. So I was reading through this the other day and. Uh, um, something along the lines that I've been talking about jumped out at me. He said, um, my father used to always say, and I'm sure everyone's father has told you this, that um, any job worth doing is worth chewing well. You know, because you want things to go well and you want to be conscientious and, and all that. And, uh, and then he said, um, but you know, on thinking of it, uh, it's also true that any job worth doing is worth doing poorly. <laughs> and uh, there's something kind of freeing in that. Uh, and it, it speaks to this, this uh, issue of um, bringing whatever we have, and it may not be a very high level of competence, but bringing whatever we have with our, with our with our uh, uh, good wishing and, and our conscientiousness to the task at hand. And um, I, I live in Thailand now, but I'm Canadian and was ordained in Canada and spent uh, still, um, you know, the bulk of my monastic life in Canada. And, and um, probably in, because I'm presuming that many or all of you are, are um, uh, familiar to this monastery or maybe a few others but you may have observed that generally speaking and, and it is a generality of course there is a difference in temperament or expectation among say Thais or Sri Lankans and say 
Westerners, broadly speaking, about um, what it is that lies at the heart of practice, or what it is that what you're supposed to do as a Buddhist, or why would you come to a monastery anyway, or or if you ask someone why do you meditate, meditate, you may get different responses according to this broad kind of temperamental difference. Certainly, I've noticed in Thailand. Um, and it's no big uh, surprise or, or remarkable intuition on my part that uh, they bring a great deal of devotion, faith to to uh, their practice, insofar as they have much of what we would call a practice. I say that because um, uh, there are millions of devout Thai Buddhists, and um, for them, their Buddhist life might comprise um, almost entirely, or maybe entirely, uh, dana and sila, so coming from time to time to a monastery with food or candles or toilet cleaning fluid, you know, we get a lot of these very practical things at monasteries, you know, toilet paper and, and uh, dishwashing soap and uh, uh, toilet brushes and, and all sorts of things like this. So this, this, this might be their way of interacting with monks largely, coming from time to time and, and um, bringing some candles. And they will come from time to time and take precepts. So they'll reflect at least for a few moments on, on their behavior. And um, they'll often take, carry that back into the village or uh, to their community or family life. And remember that it's good not to scold people too harshly or that they really do need to be honest in their speech um, and you know, honest in their commercial endeavors or something like that. So you have these, these factors being, being addressed. But, but it's, uh, it's faithfulness and, and uh, when you start um, to live in a tradition or to take on a tradition before you even know you're doing it, i.e. You're the, you're the proverbial fish in water, born to water and swimming your whole life in water, as you are if you're a, 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 a Thai youngster growing into maturity, adulthood, and just seeing monks in your village or community and interacting with at monasteries from time to time and just hearing in the daily discourse of, of um, aphorisms and advice and uh, complaints and whatnot. Um, uh, among, among this uh, speech you're hearing um, uh, maybe Buddhist wisdom in maybe in kind of convoluted form or, or misformed in some ways, but still it's part of, it's part of the water that you, that you swim in. Westerners, and you know that's very much my um, my um, you know I'm, I'm that's my ticky box. One of them, being a Western Buddhist and having to come to this in a different way, Westerners tend to have started actually in meditation. That's the most common thing. They've discovered meditation in um, yoga classes or something like this, a self-help book maybe found the, um, the value of uh, becoming calm, uh, generating some peaceful states of mind and just becoming more at ease with, with the nature of life and, and then maybe inquired more deeply into Buddhism. 
and for Western Buddhists, it's not so it's not so um, it's not so faithful in its orientation, typically at least at the beginning and maybe through the middle as well. Um, it's a surprise to to Western Buddhists. And I was speaking with some friends just a couple of weeks ago who came to visit me. But it's a, it's a surprise to have to consider the role of faith in, in Buddhist practice, in the midst of Buddhist practice. Because, um, because uh, well, that's, um, it's all about the mind, right? It's, it's about getting, uh, getting, getting uh, the rudiments of uh, Buddhist ideas correct and, and sorting things out at that level. It's not about faith letting go and, and just kind of um, being devoted to, to this practice. That's the attitude. One of the, one of the consequences of, um, of our, you know, I'm saying our Western approach to, to Buddhist life and practice, however, can be that uh, things can dry up at, at some point. We've come in with some expectations, maybe we've learned about the, the deep insights, the transformative insights that do uh, transform the character and experience of samsara. We've, we've learned about these and we've discovered forms of meditation. We've read maybe some of the texts that uh, deal with the particular afflictions, uh, defilements that are rooted out fully and finally at certain stages of awakening and we we do be, we, we we see ourselves on a path then we see our we we aspire to certain specific um, uh, transformative events insights in our in our buddhist practice and that's all that's all very good it's all very noble um, in fact, um, another element of Western life is the is how the degree to which the the transcendent gets uh, systematically weeded out of, bled out of uh, uh, Western values, um, becomes more and more increasingly materialistic. Um, the it sometimes seems a level of discourse in the public sphere becomes more and more coarse. Um, subject to, um, to 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 violence or to s subject to um, levels of discourse which are just very very uncomfortable and pleasant and and unnecessary and certainly have no less and less kind of ethical basis behind them. So a Buddhist, on the other hand, has this kind of transcendent uh, uh, view of things, which is which is so important and valuable, beautiful. And yet, as I say, um, we begin in a certain way with, with uh, certain kinds of aspirations and we, we work away, we get older as we do all of this. Bodies started to, to, to show their nature in more persistent ways, perhaps. And, and, um, and then, uh, for many people, this question will come, uh, what's, you know, am I still doing it right? Or am I, have I ever done it right? Is it going well? Where do I stand? Uh, is this working? Uh, there are these, these kinds of problems which can begin to manifest in the midst of one's practice life and they, they can become the, uh, uh, the, the doubts around these things when they, really, when they really attain a voice in the midst of our experience. 
the doubts around these things can become quite bold and persistent, such that our um, well, <laughs> our faith in our faith in practice itself might become a little eroded, or our faith in ourselves. I'm not I'm not a very good practitioner. Maybe maybe I wasn't really cut out for meditation, or uh, at least if if that isn't the case, at least I still haven't found just the right teacher teaching because it's not quite working for me. I'm still assailed by a kind of sadness uh, from time to time, or um, gee, I still get more angry. I, I I always wanted to become less angry because that's part of my character and brought me into so much trouble in life, and here I am still becoming enraged sometimes and. You know, I thought I'd be better by now. What's what's happening? Anyway, issues, difficulties, challenges like this come up for people, and they can be quite serious. Yeah, uh, serious for for folks. So, what's um, as a, as a practitioner who values using the resources in, in uh, Buddhist thought and trying to find out what to do then, faced with that kind of challenge, quite often the response is, well, I need to, <laughs> obviously I'm not doing something right, so I need to more do more of something, do more of this, right? I need to really pick up my, my game regarding samatha, or I'm not, I'm not mindful enough, that's my problem. It's always that we're not enough. Uh, it doesn't usually occur to us that there are things that we just need to do less of. <laughs> uh, and of course, doing less of something is sometimes as difficult or more difficult than doing more of something. But um, often doing less of something speaks to the matter in a different way, a more a, a gentler way, uh, a way which, which has the heart more, more involved, because it means letting go. You know, this, this image of, of, of um, you, you can just test yourself, you, just me describing it, but, but, but what is it about holding on to something, you know, holding on to something, and, and, um, and uh, if you really want to know you've got something, you hang on to it, you really hang on to it. But, and, and you've got it, there's no, you know, you could, one of you could yank on this, and I could probably keep it pretty much uh, until I eventually tired out, but it's also painful. It's, it's also quite painful, isn't it? I mean, my, even doing this, you can see my, my knuckles are getting a little white and it's getting a little bit painful. And uh, I, can still, I can still have some sort of possession or relationship with this object and by, by just letting go a bit, softening my, my grasp on it. There, I've still got it. Now, you could take it from me now, but but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of a different mind now. This would be okay with me, perhaps. So sometimes in practice, uh, it's useful to at least inquire. Well, what am I hanging on to too much? What, where, where does this pain reside? Where, where, do, where does it come from? And what, what might I let go of? R relax around, become more gracious in relation to. And one of the things that, that, that you can consider is that our attitudes towards ourselves, uh, ourselves as practitioners, as people who are 
um, struggling nobly uh, along uh, in, in on a path which is um, is new to us because every every moment arises of its own accord and it's a, it's a fresh it's a brand new moment it may seem like something we did yesterday and the day before that and for every day before that for the last 30 years but still looked at in a certain kind of way it's just a brand new moment But inquiring into our lives and f finding a different way of just opening, opening to experience is, is often productive of something uh, different because life begins to change before our eyes. And we discover that we have resources uh, that, that are present uh, uh, in our experience that we can, we can bring to, to bear. There's a, there's a statement of Ajahn Chah that, that I heard in the last year, I think. And um, one of the things that I do, just owing to my temperament, I guess, is when I hear a really good quotation, one that I can remember, so it has to be short. Uh, brevity is, is, uh, is wonderful in this regard. Um, it'll come to mind regularly. It'll come to mind. I'll, I'll bring it up. I'll make a point of bringing it up and just sort of looking at it again and again. And uh, something that Ajahn Chah said, apparently, was um, half of the spiritual life is knowing what you have to do and being unable to do it. It sounds rather, <laughs> rather depressing. It can, yeah? It can. Ajahn Chah is very wise. And so um, we can take this in different ways, I guess. One of them is, is um, uh, with humility. Yeah, yeah, it's like that, isn't it? You know, that, that response to something which is really true. Whoa, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's a sobering, it's a sobering thought. But insofar as it speaks to truth, it's therefore it has its own, it carries its own beauty. Because whenever something is true, whenever we, whenever our, our heart is able to open what, to what is true, um, Dhamma is beautiful. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Plato had, you know, had that, that, little, that little trinity, I think, in, in, uh, in good order. Half of the spiritual life is knowing what we have to do and being able, unable to do it. So we're, we're enjoined uh, regularly to follow the precepts and, and uh, our understanding of what precepts are tend to get refined over time and we, we bring our questioning to it. Gee, um, can, I spray, can I spray for aphids on the roses or, you know, we, we'll, we'll bring these kinds of questions because the precepts are not always convenient to, to keep hold of speech or any of them. So our, our precepts become more refined. And we recognize that there are some things we could do better, but it's difficult because of our character, our, our habits and, and that. Or maybe we say because some of the people that we live around are just especially difficult, colleagues at work. Or 
neighbors. Pravirodhamma, when he was uh, recently at um, a big gathering in Abhayagiri, came back with a, uh, this little gem from Lumpur Liam. Uh, he, Lumpur Pravirodhamma, and uh, a few of the senior monks would, would gather <coughs> in Lumpur Liam's kuti in the mornings and have a bit of breakfast and very collegial kind of way for very senior monks with lots of responsibility and just, you know, they, they have a lot of experience behind them, 40, 50 years of, of Dhamma or more. And uh, we get together Lumpur Liam. Now Lumpur Liam is uh, the the abbot of Wat Papong, ch chosen by Wat, Wat, by uh, Lumpur Cha himself to lead Wat Nam Papong in, in Thailand. And therefore the nominal head of 250, 300 monasteries, <laughs> and um, and looked to as the elder really in our whole sangha worldwide, and uh, he's known for his um, um, what we would call the, the the perfection of equanimity, or you know the the, the upeka barami. He has a just a great deal of, of uh, upeka. Very very wise, and uh, his words are always very measured. Um, so uh, these abbots were all speaking about various things, you know, just challenges that, that arise in monasteries and they could be all sorts of things, you know, building committees and training monks and and, uh, and, and I think one of the things that Lumpur Viridamo spoke about was um, the, the prevalence of, um, of uh, Lyme disease in this area and how you know, darn it, that's, uh, you know, uh, there are community members who have uh, this disease and uh, are afflicted by it, and um, it's just a, it's just something you have to watch for all the time, every day, basically, in fact. Yes, walking anywhere on their property means that you have to be aware that you could collect one of these little ticks. And uh, so, Lumpur Viridamo, I guess, is uh, uh, reflecting on that, and what kind of a challenge is that? And Lumpur Liam, in his own way, has just been listening to it all. And um, um, you, you may not have ever seen Lumpur Liam, a photograph of him, but he, he, um, he he's, he's, <laughs> he's often engaged with just um, not really looking at people. Uh, uh, he's maybe looking at the, the lines on his palm. I mean, he's, he's, he's very aware of what's happening, but, it, but he doesn't... He's not a he's not an extrovert. He's not sort of engaged and checking out everybody, and he's not a kind of alpha male in any <laughs> in any way you'd understand that. But he's he's really there, and um, so after every after all of these senior monks speak, uh, Lumper Liam just says, "No enemies, no wisdom." Now, the word enemy in Thai, or the way it's used, uh, it may also mean, say, no challenges. Yeah, something like that, but I think you get it, you know. Without these frustrations, without these things to kind of work away on us, grind away, you know, without, without other rocks in the, in, the, in the rock polishing, however you polish rocks, you know. But that's, that's the way, that's the way that we, the, the defilements get sort of reduced and ground down. That's, that's how it happens. So, I, I tend to ramble a bit when I talk, and I'm pretty sure that I've been 
uh, around the around the block a few times. But what I'm what I'm coming to with with this, I hope, is um, is some sense that um, pay attention to the heart. And if you come here, uh, y you'll be aware that Lumpur Viradamo uh, both speaks about heart practice and, and certainly is an exemplar of that. So this won't come as a surprise to you. Its value will not come as a surprise to you. But pay attention to the heart because it registers experience in a, in a delicate and immediate way. And it does not, it does not lie to us. Pay attention to the body, because the body registers our experience. It doesn't think about the body. Isn't the thing that's thinking about our experience all the time. It's just registering it. This is why. I mean, this this is how I understand it myself. I mean, the first foundation of mindfulness, this great you know edifice of, of meditative tradition that we 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 look upon again and again and again and again in our practice. Where does it begin? with mindfulness of the body in and of itself. And this is especially pertinent, I think, here in the West or in our busy world or however we've now described the particular challenges of our day that um, we're, our, our minds are, are being cast outward all the time or at least palmward onto, onto this device we call a cell phone, which is so indispensable now but it, it takes all of these things take us away from from the, the experience of the body the aches the pains the, the 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 movements and they and they can be very very subtle so pay attention we need to pay attention to the body at this level watch it uh, and uh, allow it to teach us uh, the mind doesn't have some kind of uh, preeminence in the whole cosmology of Buddhist experience. It just, you know, we, we give, uh, in the West especially, we give the mind a, a kind of preeminence that, it, uh, that it, it ought not be given. At least in the way we, we give it. So um, pay attention to the heart, pay attention to the body, and take heart. That is, um, things sometimes seem more difficult than they once did, but we're <laughs> it means that we're paying attention to life in, in a more refined manner. Um, and if we find that, um, if we find that this is drying things up, is, is we're, we're kind of feeling like we're being ground down by this, all this, you know, all of this expensive Buddhist practice, and I'm no happier than I was 40 years ago. If if you find yourself thinking along those lines, or 12 years ago, or whatever the numeric uh, value you want to give, um, remember that that Buddhist life, Buddhist practice, is to be found somewhere in the middle. So if you've defined a kind of extreme, God, this is hard, or this is really challenging. Well, what's What's, what's the other side of that, and where, where is the middle to be found? So, as an example of this, uh, we have, um, oh, urgency, maybe. Maybe you're working a lot with uh, birth, aging, sickening, dying, and this, this kind of reality. People are, as, as we get older, people die around us 
with more regularity and uh, before they die they tend to get sick and so forth or we ourselves um, are subject to all of these things too so urgency yeah uh, okay I have to work harder at my practice I'm not doing enough and and this kind of this kind of pressure always gathering gathering stream so the the other side of this is say so this would be some vega okay there's a good buddhist term for you here the other side of this would be pasadi which is tranquility so finding finding and and cultivating peacefulness valuing peacefulness um, finding the beauty in just this moment finding just observing the beauty in some very very simple thing finding the beauty and just breathing in, letting go. The experience of the present can be quite remarkable when we're, when we're fully present. As, as one of my teachers used to say, you know, if you find yourself bored, it's because you're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, you get the sense of that. So here we have, we have a form of balance then. If, if our attention is going more and more as you know, conscientious Buddhist practitioners to urgency, I need to get this done, I, so important, you know, I have this precious life and I'm in samsara and it's, it's of inconceivable length ahead of me unless I work, figure things out and become uh, insightful about, about the characteristics of existence or what have you. Uh, bring tranquility into this and it will it will reduce something it will reduce the level of of, uh, of suffering around just being a simple practitioner and um, You might also consider too, if uh, if this hasn't been a part of your practice to date, um, beginning to reflect on why it is that sadha, faith, or confidence has such an esteemed place in Buddhist life. Um, why it is that people never seem to get tired of bowing to the to the Buddha Rupa. Um, what it is that, that the physical gesture of bowing might do to the heart, soften it, bring some humility to, to, to life. Um, what is the nature and value, the character of refuge? What does that mean, refuge? Refuge that brings solace, brings safety, brings... Why are there three refuges? What do the refuges bring? And how is it that Sangha, the enlightened Sangha, awakened Sangha is refuge? How is it that Dhamma is refuge? Somewhere in these reflections, uh, um, this aspect, this, this spiritual quality, this enlightenment factor of, of, of faith can, can be aroused. And it takes, it, it one of its uh, values is to is to take away some of the responsibility that we feel as as good practitioners to get certain things accomplished. 
because it opens up life in a way which isn't our business, it's just there it is. So I'll leave <laughs> these words with your, for your, for your reflection, and uh, thank you for your attention. Tanasila Bhavana, so uh, uh, generosity, morality, and, and practice. So they'll often, you know, kind of focus on the first two of those. Yeah, what we call practice or meditating regularly. They may not feel they have time for it, or just feel inclined for it, or they may feel that it's not really. Oh, that's sort of the monk's business. It's not. You know, they may have different attitudes towards it, but um, but uh, they will they will be reminded quite regularly in their culture that uh, taking the precepts, you know, is a good thing. So at least reflecting on moral values and their behavior is good. So for instance, during the uh, rains retreat, uh, we'll have villagers who come up every um, one, uh, every, um, you know, in the, in the lunar quarter, they'll come up each of those four days per month and take the precepts again. And just to kind of revive them, it, the precepts aren't, aren't things that need to be taken with monks, but of course doing something like this in a formal uh, um, arena sort of strengthens one's own commitment to them. So uh, they, they will do this. So that's, yeah, Dan and Sila are interested like that. And my second question is, um, I need some guidance on, on, on this equanimity idea. Mm. Particularly as it relates to uh, training the mind to be more disciplined around indulgence. Mm -hmm. I know when I have to. I like reading about world affairs and news on the on, on the internet. I can't stop myself. I I do more than I should. Mm -hmm. Same thing with my favorite foods. Mm -hmm. um, how does one bring Buddhist uh, practice to train your mind? Moderation. Well, I mean, in a way, the response to that is always just mindfulness. That's one response. One of the things that mindfulness does, I mean, your, your question is interesting because we, we so often think of indulgence in terms of the, the physical senses, you know, eating too much or, you know, our second piece of carrot cake or whatever it is, um, or uh, watching too many films or whatever. But yeah, the mind, the mind certainly uh, loves to, you know, it might be detective novels. Maybe for you it's world news. One of the things that I think mindfulness will do, I mean, we, we, we do things quite often and we like to lose ourselves in them, right? So that's the indulgence. Um, we just kind of feed off of them and don't realize what we're doing. But one of the things that mindfulness can do, say with watching news, is look for patterns. And, um, and um, because a sense of ennui, a sense of, oh, 
there it is again, you know, oh, there it is again, or look for, look for Dhamma, so where is it that precepts, you know, maybe the Buddhist precepts, where, where is it, what precepts are difficult for people everywhere, myself included, but all these people in the news, which precepts are difficult to keep, yeah, or uh, what precepts are less difficult to keep, maybe, but um, I find this notion of patterns interesting, the ways in which what seem to be um, mistakes are expressed again and again in public life, or even um, deception is, is revealed again and again in public life. Um, uh, that, can, that can bring about a sense of um, disenchantment. And disenchantment is actually uh, a useful, sobering kind of device or, or, or experience in Buddhism, because it, it, you know, we're we're still reading the news, and we're as we say informed, maybe for for this time, but we're not so deeply engaged with everything. You know, if you're 15 years old, maybe every time you see something wrong in the newspaper, you want to get on the bus and fix it. You know, oh, I must go to this part of the city and help this old woman, or I must go and march in that in that. You know, it's very very engaged, and then we 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 mature, we get older, and we see that. Many of these problems are up here and there, and then we maybe we think more deliberately about how we might help them, and then we 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 develop beyond this too. So equanimity can come from noticing patterns, looking for dhamma in things. Um, um, there's a lot of death uh, in in the paper, right? Um, remembering that I too will die, uh, and it may not be in any way that I'm aware of now. You know, if you watch the movies, dying, you know, what you want to do is die in your bed with your loved ones around you and that, but it might be through accident, it might be an act of violence, it might be on the road somewhere, or we don't know how it comes, we don't know when it will come, where it comes, what form it will take. So, you know, you read news like this and, you, and, and if you apply it inward like this too, this is using Dhamma to some degree in, in the consumption of news. So um, anywhere where there's mindfulness and there's reflection of this, uh, some degree, I think, of equanimity will arise. Um, the in, in Buddhism, we have what are called near and far enemies. So this is a kind of term. So uh, the, the far enemy of equanimity would be passion, maybe, you know, someone with the head of becoming very angry, very, very desirous, or what have you. Equanimity is something else. So that's that's his obvious opposite. The the near enemy is something that looks like like it. What looks like upekka, equanimity is indifference. So indifference is just a closing off. Uh, it can be in, out of narcissism or selfishness or not wanting to, to, to look at something or just shutting oneself down. It isn't a sobering, but a, a kind of um, what, numbing, basically. So you can look for your, yourself, uh, look for your experience in that way, too. Um, but I guess if it's a source of reflection, and, um, and then um, three days in a row, just, just make a determination, okay, for you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm not watching any news, I'm not reading any news. And then just see what happens. Uh, what, what happens with the mind then? Does it just 
sort of you know, like a ping pong ball against the wall, you know, it just keeps coming back to you, or, or, or where, where's the mind? Uh, that'll show you, that'll, that'll reel to you another aspect of equanimity. I'm, I may be, uh, I may be very restless now. What's happening? I just can't seem to, <laughs> something's missing in my life. It's my fix of news. I suppose if, if, if we're um, consuming news in a, in a really mindful way, you would not find that degree of restlessness or um, you may find the mind arguing in a certain way, you know, I'm not being a good citizen here. You, know, you might find some sophisticated philosophical way of arguing against uh, uh, ever uh, turning away from the news, I'm not sure. But equanimity is a very uh, a precious thing because it, it it, it has access to, it's actually one of the four Brahma Viharas, so there's, there's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, okay? The other three are, are more obviously heart-based, and we, we always kind of puzzle over equanimity, but loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. And equanimity, uh, um, an equanimous mind is one which is balanced, is not, is not thrown off of, of this kind of poise. Um, uh, it, it has, um, there's a kind of silence to it, but it's alert, it's present, and it always has access to loving kindness, to compassion, to sympathetic joy. But it's not, it's not uh, if you see something very beautiful and wonderful, your grandchild does something rather you're not just thrown into elation you know until you're running around the house uh, uh, in jubilation it's just pleasant it's how, how wonderful you know and you feel the happiness of this child and and what it brings to his or her life or something like this but it's it's different from that kind of elation um, if you see something uh, very very difficult it does not throw you into depression or anger or sadness or whatnot there's this heart, the, the heart is still open, it's registering uh, our own, everyone's vulnerability to pain or to, to, to loss or what have you in, in uh, hearing about someone's uh, misfortune. So, and perhaps there's, there's a way that you can respond with some sort of caring gesture or something like that. But it, but it does not become uh, afflicted with grief, for instance. So compassion is not grief. And similarly, with, with loving kindness, uh, it isn't um, um, doesn't have the quality of attachment, but just this this uh, broad kind of uh, uh, experience of, of friendliness, of, of, of interest in the other, in, in the well-being, the welfare of others. So, so equanimity has all of these available to it, but it uh, when it's when it's um, um, when it's really apparent, it's this very poised and stable state. It's not fixed or hard or, or muffled off or anything, but it's, it's uh, uh, very resonant and available and poised. Do you still have your question? You made lots of food for thought. Oh, good, good, yeah. There was a question right behind you that was asked. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> um, I was wondering about when uh, faith began to arise in you? Um, yeah, when? Um, you know, since I was a kid, I always had some, some, um, uh, what? <laughs> uh, 
I always had some some faith in uh, a kind of transcendent dimension or, or capacity of, of human beings, of the human heart, the human mind, to to see beyond what we take to be to be real in that. So I guess it was a little bit like that. Um, I I didn't come from a really religious family, and you know, we weren't churchgoers, for instance. My dad had been, you know, just grown up, brought up in the Lutheran tradition. My mom, I think her, my grandmother is a devout atheist. So, um, um, but, yeah, it's, it's just some, just feeling like there's, there's something, there's something more, there's something beyond. And, and then, when I would encounter sometimes stories, maybe being kind of credulous or naive or whatnot as part of it, for some, uh, you know, when you're 15 or <laughs> 19 or whatever, but uh, I would encounter stories of great teachers, great you know, masters, gurus, or yogis, or what have you, uh, uh, from the East, particularly. But sometimes I'd read the stories of Christian saints as well, and I would find myself really impressed. I mean, deeply impressed by uh, the beauty of, of a life which is given over to something which doesn't simply value the things that we're taught to value through advertising, through television, through, through our parents, through culture. So, um, then uh, uh, I, I, met, I, I met some good teachers early on in my practice. My, at my first retreat in 1980, and it turns out that the the woman leading it, she she was kind of a she had been a summit, she had been a, a, a novice, a, female, a woman novice in Sri Lanka. She was European, uh, but uh, was herself a uh, very wise person, very astute, and had very very deep meditation practice, very very solid samadhi. And um, that was my first, you know, that was my first encounter with a Buddhist teacher of meditation. So that was my good fortune. And uh, it was clear that she understood things about her students that weren't, you know, everyday kinds of things. They were, they were deep insights into character. And they, for her, her they're just like reading a, reading a newspaper, you know. But, um, so th things like this, I think, instilled in me a faith that, that the mind is capable of so much more that we can understand a great deal more about, about life around us become sensitive to more and wise about more and uh, certainly then becoming a monk and uh, more lately going to, to Asia and meeting uh, some monks who are widely regarded to have, as we say, finished their work, um, become, become, uh, become awakened, fully awakened in this practice. And just being around them a little bit, and, and certainly projecting, you know, <laughs> projecting. I mean, I, I guess they do this all the time. But you get to observe uh, people like this. Not that there are thousands of them, but you get to observe them. And um, if they make an impact on you, uh, it, it's, it, that is itself a great encouragement to continue practice. And um, Gives you, it gives you added faith, I would say, in, in the directions they give you, the instructions or observations they make uh, about you. And um, so, 
Yeah, it's along these lines. It comes, it's comes through different avenues, I guess, for me, uh, over time, since I was pretty young. And so. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You're welcome.